This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Pelvic pain can be challenging, both for the patient as well as the provider. It can have a variety of presenting symptoms since it can originate from a variety of organ systems. When pelvic pain becomes chronic, it becomes even more challenging. Approximately 15% of women of childbearing age have had pelvic pain that's lasted at least six months. Many of these patients have had symptoms for over two years before seeking medical care. This is also a costly condition. In the US alone, it's estimated that approximately $2 billion per year are spent on pelvic pain. And this includes not only the direct healthcare costs, but more importantly, the substantial indirect costs such as work absenteeism. Since patients often initially seek help from their primary care provider, it's important that we're comfortable evaluating and managing them. Typically about 40% of patients are referred for specialty care. However, due to the nature of pelvic pain, a variety of specialties are often consulted, resulting in patients being frequently passed back and forth between providers. We're gonna get some tips on how to evaluate and manage patients with pelvic pain from Dr. Isabel Green, a physician from the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Mayo Clinic. Welcome, Isabel. Thanks for having me. Well, this is a huge topic and I'm not sure where to start. Is there a way that in your mind you categorize pelvic pain, whether it's intermittent, constant, acute, chronic, how do you think about it in your head? Yeah, you're right. This is a big topic. When I think about pain, there are the acute causes and sort of what I think about as those urgent, don't want to miss acute conditions that you think about for acute abdominal pain or acute pelvic pain. And then there's more of an intermittent pain that you might see. And we can talk a little bit more about that. And then there's sort of the the chronic pain with with really significant impairment in quality of life, you know, failure of a lot of prior treatments and sort of pain out of proportion of what you would expect. Sometimes these are linear and an acute pain process can lead to a chronic pain condition and other times they're really completely separate. So thinking about acute pain, those would be Thinking of your differential of appendicitis, ovarian torsion, ovarian cyst rupture, pelvic inflammatory disease, things like that, versus chronic pain in terms of gynecologic pain can really start to involve even overlapping conditions and, as you mentioned, different organ systems. So when I think about chronicity, I think about more than six months of pain and failure of prior treatments and sort of pain out of proportion and sort of impairing quality of life versus a sort of acute phase of pain. Okay. Well, let's say we're a primary care provider and our next patient says they have pelvic pain. So whether it's acute or chronic, what's the most important part of the evaluation? Is it medical history like it is in a lot of other medical conditions? Is it laboratory tests, imaging studies, what's going to give you the most information about what's going on? That's a, another great question. I think the laboratory test and the imaging studies 
are really essential in acute pain. You know, we think about the things that you don't want to miss. When it comes to someone presenting with pelvic pain that has a chronic nature, the power in the patient visit there is very much in the history and then also in the physical. There's so much information that we can gather from patients um, by listening to their stories and exploring their pain symptoms that I would really emphasize uh, an exceptionally good history and physical here. What are important questions to be asking? You know, we always hear about how we interrupt patients, you know, very quickly. A lot of times here, sitting back and letting them explain depending on their story, how it started and how it evolved, they can deliver a lot of information, even from that general opening statement. Important questions to ask are, did this start as something more acute? Did it then become something more intermittent and then more constant? So obviously as a gynecologist, a lot of what we do might center around a menstrual cycle. Did this pain begin with the onset of menarche? Is this something that occurs every month with a menstrual cycle? And then only now, blank months or years later, has it started to evolve into more of a daily pain? So the first part really is getting a sense of the journey, what things have looked like before and what they look like now. Because really at any moment in time with a patient with chronic pelvic pain, it it might have looked different. And that can actually help you clue into etiologies and potential treatments. I think one thing you said a little while ago is so important and that we need to let the patient describe their symptoms and their history in their own words. Just because of the nature of this, it's not, we can't assume this is gynecologic. There's so many other organ systems that could be involved. And if we come at this from a very narrow focus, and assume it's one thing, we're gonna miss the diagnosis. And the history is so much richer when you ask the patient open-ended questions, let the patient describe how this started, what's happening and, um, and so forth. I, I think that can't be uh, overemphasized. Absolutely. Well, I tend to tell people to kind of approach it with curiosity. You know, as a specialist, we're often asked to evaluate for gynecologic sources and as a gastroenterologist, you might be asked to evaluate for GI sources. I would ask that all of us should look at it with curiosity, the same way a primary care provider might, to really look at what their symptoms are associated with, you know, what the triggers are, what makes things worse, what makes things better. Really going back to almost that medical school learning of the history and differential, even if it's not in your area of expertise, because as you say, there's, there's often not one cause, or it might not be in your wheelhouse, so to speak, but in trying to help the patient, our goal is really to try to start to identify some of those pain generators. Or a combination of things, maybe some endometriosis and irritable bowel syndrome, and you're dealing with the confusing history, but it may actually be from two or more areas. Are there any red flag symptoms that uh, we should be watching for? Yeah. So I think about a patient with chronic pelvic pain can also still have other issues happen to them, right? They can still have appendicitis. They can still have colon cancer. They can still have ovarian torsion or pneumonias. So 
keeping in mind as you're evaluating patients and not really dismissing any new symptoms or any of the red flag symptoms you would have thought of in the evaluation of acute pain. Things like unintended weight loss, blood in stool, acute episodes of pain that are much higher than, than baseline. And that's where the imaging and the lab tests come in to start to give some objective data to rule out infections, inflammation, um, other sources of pain. And those are really, I think, helpful when you have a patient that's had intermittent exacerbations. A lot of our chronic pain patients struggle with, well, how do I know if something else is really wrong? And they've sort of gone through a very exhaustive evaluation. I tell them, well, right now we're very reassured and part of your role as your own self-advocate is going forward and looking for those red flag symptoms yourself because that's a reason to seek new care. So the patient should look out for them and we should too in terms of things that you would naturally think of that would warrant further evaluation, more acute evaluation. All right. So our history is done. How much of a physical exam should be, uh, should be performed? So as a primary care provider, I would say a, a pretty thorough exam. And, and what's been really fascinating in my role in gynecology is I've really had to learn examination skills that I had let go, you know, after medical school. So something that's, that's helpful to me is, as you said, and as we talked about, starting with a really open story, working on a differential, trying to look at triggers, whether that's pain that's worse with standing, worse with sitting, that might be pointing me towards musculoskeletal issues, pain that's worse with or before a bowel movement, pain that's associated with menses or intercourse. All of those are starting to help inform my physical exam. And then with the physical exam, I'm also kind of keeping that wide differential. So almost starting head to toe, you know, looking at the, at other pain generators that might be cluing you into sensitization if they have shoulder pain and neck pain and lower back pain on exam, looking at hip pain and even doing some of the hip triggers like the rotation movements and leg lifts. Those are incredibly sensitive for detecting intrinsic hip disease as a source of pain. And I can't tell you the number of patients I've seen for a consultation for oophorectomy, and really it's a labral tear or chronic hip injury that we could pick up with those simple exams. As a gynecologist, I don't necessarily know the specifics of what I'm finding. I just know that it's something intrinsic to the hip. And then I am empowered to kind of advocate for the patient to explore that as a, as a source so all of these little parts of the exam help give us these clues. So looking at myofascial and musculoskeletal components is probably the area where you're going to get almost the greatest benefit for your investment. There's certainly going to be rare zebras and things like that that can contribute to pain. But if you have a really good musculoskeletal exam, you'll really, I think, help a lot of patients by identifying myofascial pain, which is incredibly common. In addition to kind of the hip, which I talked about, thinking about the abdominal wall exam a little bit differently. You know, we always think about rebound and guarding and looking for masses, but really getting comfortable with evaluating patients with a carnet sign. So if they uh, contract their abdominal wall muscles while you're on a trigger point, either by doing a small sit up or raising their legs on the table, 
if that increases pain, that kind of points you again towards the musculofascial layers of the abdominal wall. Other components of the, of the muscular exam include a really good pelvic floor exam, which is a major component of gynecology. And I think could be a better representative component of a primary care exam. If you're a doctor that's comfortable doing bimanual exams and pap smears, then certainly introducing a pelvic floor muscle exam, I think could greatly benefit your patients that are concerned with chronic pain, especially chronic dyspnea or pain with sitting and movement. So I think the musculoskeletal exam is a real place to pay some additional attention in these patients and something that, again, is not under the purview of gynecology, but I, I do on almost everyone that, that comes in with pain concerns. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that this next question depends on the area of suspicion we have, but what laboratory tests do you commonly order for patients with pelvic pain? In patients that have focal symptoms, so tenderness with palpation of the cervix, tenderness and palpation of the uterus, we will evaluate for infectious causes and endometritis. And that's where kind of that acute pain can overlap and blend with chronic pain in terms of evaluating for pelvic inflammatory disease. Other times a laboratory test can be helpful is in looking for inflammation or elevated white blood cell counts or evidence of anemia. Again, trying to get some objective data in terms of something more systemic occurring. The other thing I would say is urine cultures. Um, So frequently women with pelvic floor dysfunction, with spasm of the pelvic floor, with tension of the pelvic floor and painful intercourse might have painful bladder syndrome or might have pain with a full bladder, the sense of urgency and frequency, and may commonly be treated for UTIs, especially with the guidelines that exist where, you know, if you have symptoms of UTI, it's okay to treat over the phone, you know, not necessarily with an exam, but a urine culture and a urinalysis can really be helpful for minimizing the overuse of antibiotics in this group of patients. So those are a lot of the the lab tests that I think really help focus on almost ruling out really acute things that are in the background of a chronic pain syndrome. Okay. And finally, what imaging studies do you find useful? Imaging I find is very helpful for evaluation of endometriosis as a source of pain, as adenomyosis as a source of pain. And usually in gynecology, those are patients that at some point probably had intermittent pain that then went to chronic or in the context of their chronic pain, have intermittent flares that relate to a menstrual cycle. There are really great protocols now for ultrasound and especially here at Mayo for MRI that can really help us identify endometriosis that might involve the rectosigmoid, the back of the uterus, adhesive disease, things like that, and certainly help us with evaluating for adenomyosis. Other times it's helpful is those I consider kind of rule in reasons to get imaging tests. Other times I find imaging tests to be particularly useful are for ruling out. You know, I recently saw an 80 year old who has ovaries in place with left lower quadrant discomfort and really has a lot of components on exam that are consistent with an abdominal wall trigger point. But in that patient, an ultrasound really given her age is essential to rule out any visceral pathology while I am 
planning this workup and treatment for myofascial pain as a rule out. So in the world of gynecology, pelvic imaging is incredibly valuable, I think, for in some cases ruling in pathology and degree of pathology, especially with endo and um, our really great protocols with MRI, and also ruling out sort of before fully committing to a diagnosis of myofascial pain, making sure that the visceral organs are okay. Right. Well, let's focus now on the patient with chronic pelvic pain, the patient who's been maybe to several different providers and no specific cause has been found. When I've seen those patients, it seems like more often than not, they also have some degree of anxiety, maybe depression, insomnia, problems with a work or relationship. I've never known, is this a constellation of symptoms that develops all at one time? Or are, are these other things a result of chronic pain? Uh, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's the million dollar question is, is what comes first. And really, it's probably an interplay and multifactorial. So the research is suggesting that even patients that experience an acute issue like ovarian cyst rupture, for example, there'll be a group of patients where that won't lead to a chronic issue at all. And then there'll be a group of patients either because of genetic factors, psychosocial factors, overlapping conditions that will evolve into a, a chronic pain syndrome. So we do know that psychosocial factors and genetic factors and mental health impact how a patient may transition and how their nervous system may transition from an acute pain to a chronic pain situation. In turn, pain and dysfunction and decreases in quality of life worsen mental health conditions. Deconditioning certainly worsens pain. So the fear of movement actually can make pain worse, whereas, you know, it's kind of a vicious cycle. And similarly, the change from acute to chronic can lead to sleep dysfunction, which then in turn can also impact mental health and worsen pain itself. So it's almost like there are certain people that are a little bit more susceptible to transitioning to chronic pain. And then within chronic pain, it's almost as the, though these other conditions are starting to pull at the resources that someone has to manage pain. So lack of sleep, increased levels of stress, altered mood and depression start to impact a, an individual's ability to also be resourceful and manage pain. And that can lead then to further chronicity and further impairment in function and quality of life. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely an interplay there. And part of our job is to see how those components are factoring in and try to address them as well. Well, it seems like a condition like this that could be GI, urologic, gynecologic, musculoskeletal would be best served with a multidisciplinary approach. And I believe I'm describing your clinic. Is that correct? Yes. So we're lucky in that we have our gynecology team, but within Mayo Clinic, we also have our physical medicine and rehabilitation team, physical therapy, gastroenterology, even vascular we have anesthesia pain clinic, we have pain psychology with cognitive behavioral therapy, and women's health clinic with sexual function and sexual therapy. So we really have a large team. 
And the multidisciplinary approach helps us because any one of us might see someone with pain symptoms that seem to point to quote unquote our field, but we may identify other contributors or it may have nothing to do with gynecology. So there's the possibility for a patient to come in and have been focused so much in gynecology because that's maybe their access to care. You know, everyone usually has an OB or a GYN and that might have been their entry point. But during the exam, we really identify other organ systems and it's, it's really wonderful to have a team around us that our answer doesn't have to be your pain is not gynecologic, I can't help you, but you know, my exam, your history really leads me to think that we need to explore this other organ you know, system and, and process as a source of your pain. That's one group of patients. And then there's patients with overlapping pain conditions. So my patient with endometriosis um, has a very high risk of also having, in conjunction with the endometriosis, of having myofascial pain or pelvic floor dysfunction, of having irritable bowel syndrome, chronic migraines, certainly even a component of sensitization. So the multidisciplinary approach helps us in best helping even people that are kind of just in the wrong place, you know, they're, they're seeing the wrong person, but also more powerful, I think, is that it helps us with people that have overlapping pain conditions. And the data from those suggests that if I just treat one, so if I'm a super duper amazing endometriosis surgeon, and I treat their endometriosis, but don't address those other sources of pain and those other overlapping pain conditions, they won't have that same improvement that my other patient that just has endometriosis has. So it might be seen as a treatment failure, but really it's that we, we really do need to have that multidisciplinary approach with that group of patients. So there's probably no answer to the question of how do you manage the patient with no definite cause found because it can involve multiple systems and therefore a multidisciplinary approach seems to be the best way to uh, go about managing these patients. You know, the nervous system is an amazing structure. Its plasticity is in our favor, but it can also be, you know, harmful. And the pain in and of itself can become its own disease. So the endometriosis may be long gone. The diverticulitis may have been treated and resolved. And pain in and of itself can then become a disorder. And I would encourage us all to make sure that we validate that part of a patient's experience, that it's not in their head and that pain can be real and really explain the changes that happen in the nervous system in response to pain, the concepts of hypersensitivity and hyperalgesia, and that can occur viscerally, that can occur somatically. And then I think treatment of that in and of itself should be the new focus. And options include, you know, anesthesia pain clinic, some neuromodulators and different pain medications in that front, you know, avoiding opiates or opioids. And then also the concept of pain rehab. So changing perspectives, improving exercise, using cognitive behavioral therapy, which is really showing a lot of promise across the pain disorders. So there's still a lot we can do for patients, even if they no longer have organ system or a disease or a disorder for us to, to target, we can really still help people by targeting pain itself as a disorder. So 
Very similar to the approach that we've been taking now with fibromyalgia patients, which actually probably are a part of this condition or could be. Absolutely. So the patients that don't necessarily have a disorder for us to treat, so they don't have endometriosis, they don't necessarily have pelvic floor. What I'll say is that very rarely is it just fibromyalgia or just sensitization. There is still usually something we can do, but you can imagine if we don't address the sensitization, we won't see significant improvements if you know, a birth control pill will not help endometriosis necessarily in the context of central sensitization and hypersensitivity. So that's where the multidisciplinary approach and really kind of looking outside your own box is really helpful to, to get patients the resources that they need. We have a growing uh, department for resources for CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and we have group pain sessions and one-on-one cognitive behavioral therapy sessions that can occur. There's a lot of online apps that are available. So we're, we're trying to get to patients so that we can still treat them with their pain. Mm-hmm. Have you found success with this multidisciplinary approach? I have. There's a concept too of what a patient brings and what journey they've had. Some will be more or less accepting of the idea of overlapping pain conditions. Some will be more or less accepting of that plasticity of our neurologic system and how that can result in dysfunctional pain and and sensitization. Some people are still seeking a pill or a surgery that will cure them of their pain. And that can be hard, you know, that's been a hard journey for these patients. So sometimes in those patients, all, all we're really doing is some additional education and maybe in a future visit with myself or with another provider or another institution, they may be more likely to seek help once we're at that point for, for sensitization and, and sort of more of a global pain syndrome. Well, Isabel, that was a nice review. Can you summarize our discussion by maybe giving our listeners maybe two or three key points regarding the evaluation of patients with chronic pelvic pain? I think my number one point would be to listen and to allow time. I am incredibly privileged to work here at Mayo and have a lot of time to speak with my patients and have my team speak with patients with pain. In other practices I've worked at, I did have to kind of space that out to multiple visits and really counsel people that I'm doing that for their benefit, because I think we really do need more time to explore things. And I really imagine in a very busy primary care practice, this would be hard to manage in 10 to 15 minutes. So you may need to bring someone back to really allow them that time to listen to them and to validate, you know, their symptoms. The second, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, is that exploring with curiosity. So It's always important for us to have in mind those red flags that you mentioned and um, sort of the acute causes, but really exploring that differential diagnosis with curiosity and trying to get a sense for triggers that might point to different organ systems and overlapping conditions potentially. Those would be kind of my first two. And then number three is if you're seeing patients with pain frequently, I think really becoming familiar with parts of the exam that maybe you don't do a lot. So for me, that was musculoskeletal, but for primary care, maybe that is pelvic floor 
or getting a sense for the difference between uterine tenderness and pelvic floor tenderness, you know, because you have to examine the pelvic floor in order to get to the uterus. And so really trying to learn that in your practice and kind of hone your exam skills to work on these differentials would be an area of advice. And we're always here for any questions or tips on how to do that. And then finally, I would say, I have a team around me, but you can create a referral team around you of individuals that can be those specialists to rule out and rule in conditions. And I think I've said this before, the ruling out and the ruling in, it's important to rule out things like colon cancer and inflammatory bowel disease, but that's not the only component of the GI referral. You do want to create relationships with specialists that believe in irritable bowel syndrome and functional pain and visceral hyperalgesia. And that's, I think, where you'll get the most benefit for your patients as you provide those referrals so that everyone isn't, like you said, kind of passing patients around. We're sort of, we all kind of believe in this organ system, but we also believe in kind of that overarching concept of of chronic pain and functional pain and hyperalgesia that can occur in any organ system. Well, we've been discussing the multidisciplinary approach to chronic pelvic pain with Dr. Isabel Green, a physician from the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Mayo Clinic. Isabel, thank you for sharing your expertise with us for this very challenging problem. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.